The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Marymark Medical, Gimpy Foam and Rubber and NICAD Earth Moving. My guest today has only recently been elected Mayor of the Gimpy Regional Council. Glenn Hartwig grew up on a Gimpy farm before leaving to join the Queensland Police Force and is now in the second phase of a political career in local government. I'm pleased to have him in the studio today for Over the Bonnet. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's Over the Bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Glenn Hartwick, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you. You've not long been elected Mayor of Gympie. Yep. What are you hoping? A, a complete change for the whole area? Um, you know, we're here to represent the entire region, not just Gympie. So um, I think for us in, in this next term, it's about back to basics and, and about getting the, the core responsibilities of council, doing them and doing them well. Um, we're obviously in a uh, financial predicament that I think, you know, most of us didn't realise it would be as bad as what it is. We all thought that there was some serious financial issues to deal with. But as we dig into the data and, and find out where the organisation is actually at, it's um, a little bit more serious than what we anticipate. So there's a, look, it's, it's, it's about doing the simple things, do, uh, focusing on our, our core responsibilities and doing them well. And then once we've, once we've got that sorted, then we'll um, be able to step out and do some other things that uh, you know, benefit the community as a whole. What do you call core responsibilities? Simple stuff, roads, rates and rubbish. Like it's, not, it's not sexy, you know. Were you surprised by what you found when you got into office? Um, look, yeah, I, I actually was because I had been someone that could see that things weren't going the way um, they should, that we were spending more than we should. And I'd been very vocal within council about my concerns for the rate at which we were spending and the lack of financial accountability. And I, I, I honestly thought we'd start at zero. I, I thought there'd be no money in the bank, but we'd, <laughs> we'd, we'd, we'd have something to work off. We'd have something to move forward from. Everything should have been maintained nearly at that you know minimum standard. And, and what we have found, and you know, I had a conversation with one of our staff members who's very passionate about business improvement. And, um, and he said to me, Glenn, I've read some of your posts about, you know, the lack of maintenance on our roads and, and those sorts of things. And he said, but it's right across the, right the organisation. He said, everything that we own as an organisation, the, the, the maintenance has been um, neglected. He said, the chair you're sitting on, the desk you're sitting at, everything. And then when you go into my office, you know, the, the chair that I use is the, the mayoral chair, if you want to call it, there's a, there's a pad on there that's held on there by sticky tape. I mean... <laughs> Everything, wow. everything that we have has been neglected and um, and it's just going to take some time to start to do the basics, the, the, the things that really don't excite people. But when you're driving down a road that's falling they, they apart... Pro they probably do, you know, because as you say, someone has uh, a pothole out for, outside the house, they're going to want it fixed. Yeah, and you know, and, and that's our job is to, to do those basics and allow people to get on with their life um, with as little inconvenience as possible. And when you're driving over roads that are rough, 
it, it affects you financially. Your, your cars wear out a lot quicker. You know, the mechanic might like it because he's replacing your shocks <laughs> and, and all the, the rubbers and all that a, a lot quicker. But, um, you know, that's money that can't be spent in, in other businesses in the community and, and, and puts further pressure um, on people when rates notices come out and they think, well, I just spent 600 bucks fixing up a car that I, you know, I have to drive on a rough road. So, you know, it, it's like I said, but, but just before, it's not sexy stuff. We're just going to get back to basics, um, start some financial repair, start organisational repair and, and get our culture where, you know, Gympie Regional Council is the, you know, the, the place to work. Not because it's an easy, you know, hey, show up and sit in the corner and do nothing. We, we need our pound of flesh from staff, but the reputation that comes from our productivity and from the environment that we create makes it a, um, a sought after place to work because, you know, you enjoy it. Um, maybe not every day, <laughs> but, you know, you, um, I think for me, you know, if you put, you know, have, have worked at, on, on your resume and a current employee of Gympie Regional Council and there's a period of time there, maybe three to five years, where a prospective employer sees that and they know our reputation from our productivity and from our organisational culture and the systems and that that we have in place, that they go, let's interview them. You know, it's that, that line on their resume is a foot in the door. What happens after the interview or during the interview, well, that's up to the staff member, but let our organisation be a springboard for you to go on to, to achieve greater things. You'd really want to be hanging on to the good staff though, wouldn't you? Well, absolutely. But I mean, at the same time, if you start to take that mentality of we don't want to lose people, you generally then try to stifle people's growth. I think the reality is if you've got a good organisation, if it's a great place to work, good staff will stay. Some of them will leave and we, we have to accept that, but they will go somewhere else that is um, second rate compared to where they were and the first opportunity, they'll come back to us and they'll perform better and they'll appreciate the place that they are, you know, that they get to work in then. So, you know, I, um, I just want it to be the best place to work and let people decide what they want to do with their careers. It surprises me, though, with you being a member of the previous council that you didn't know the depth of financial problems that the Kalula Council or the Gympie Regional Council was actually in. Um, look, it was really, I found it really hard to get information and I, and I wasn't the only councillor. And that's really bad. Absolutely. It, but, you know, like you're a member of council, you couldn't get information. Look, a fine, a fine example, it took me 18 months of consistent asking, I want a breakdown of our reserves. And people, you know, we, we basically have two bank accounts. One is... is cash at bank, which we can use to pay our bills and, and pay our staff wages. And the other one is constrained funds. And that's written in legislation that there's certain money that council collects that must be put aside and spent on a particular purpose. It's constrained. So we may have at any point, you know, 15 or $20 million in the bank, but um, 10 of that or 15 of that could be constrained funds that we can't spend on, on paying our staff wages. And and I wanted a breakdown and I wanted a historical understanding of um, where we were and where we had come from. So give me the last five years of what was our total cash in terms of cash at bank and, and, and constrained funds and give me a breakdown and a year by year breakdown of um, what were the changes in those, in those two amounts. Did our constrained funds change? What did we spend that money on? Did our cash at bank change? What did we spend that money on? 18 months. 
I finally got a, an, a, um, a time with the CFO. We sat down and, and, he, and he put it, pulled out an A4 and said, there you go, Glenn, that's it. I said, but this is just stuff from our annual report. I can see this online. How much do we have in, you know, of that, those money, uh, monies is constrained and what's it constrained for? And I couldn't get that information. That, so, that seems really bizarre. Look, it, it, it was just part of the organisation that we were in. That's just how things were done in Gympie Regional Council. And, and it's not appropriate. I'm not justifying it. I'm just trying to let people know that that's where we were. And the direction that we're heading is, is very different. And, you know, councillors, I encourage them to ask questions. I encourage them to hold staff at account because that's our job. The, 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 the role of councillors and, and the bureaucracy is this gentle dance <laughs> of where, where it's, you know, staff want to do their things their way. And, and, and we have to, to make sure that we're actually heading in the, in the direction that the community wants. So it's not always, um, how do you put it? It's just that it, it's, it's not the most, um, sometimes there's a little bit of tension between the two groups because we each have our different perspective on where we think we should go. And so when, I think when council is too cushy with staff, um, you don't ask the questions you need to ask and you don't get the information you need. And, and I think we're at a good point now where councillors are encouraged to ask questions, they're supported in that, and, um, and, you know, and staff are realising that it's a, it's a different world that we're in now. There were talks that there was going to be a lot of staff laid off, but that seems to have been uh, put back. What's the, the story there? Um, we, at Council understands that we can't afford the number of staff we have. We're, we're at a point where we go, okay, well, let's lock in a minimum of a 10% rate increase right across the board for everyone for the next four years, or we make some difficult decisions that aren't enjoyable but we set the organisation up on a trajectory where we can start to do things for the community. If we went with the 10% rate rise, and um, you know, we could afford then to keep everyone employed. You put them in the corner though, and because even though you can afford to pay their wages, you can't buy them a pencil to do anything. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a few, for me, that's a futile um, approach and, and isn't in the interest of the ratepayer. We do have to reduce our number of staff. Our, our ratios of, of frontline staff to, to office staff is, is out of whack when you compare with any other local government around the country, and particularly any, any local governments that are similar in, in demographic to ours. So we have to make that decision. We started that process with the former acting uh, CEO. Um, the instructions... Was he pushed or did he leave of his own accord? The, the CEO. He, the CEO resigned. And, um, and we accepted his resignation. Um, there have been some other directors that have, you know, uh, one was made redundant, and there are two on leave at present. And um, you know, we've, we've appointed a new CEO that will will do a, a whole review. And I, I think, you know, putting these redundancies on hold actually goes to show um, how Shane Gray, the new CEO, is, is very steady in his approach. He. You know, the, the instructions and the view of council is that we, we feel we're a little bit too heavy in the upper and middle management. So the positions that we, we wanted to target um, to put ourselves in a position where we, could, where we were financially sustainable didn't relate to any frontline or operational staff. They were about upper and middle management where we feel the organisation is rather bloated. Um, the new CEOs come in 
and in two days we're supposed to sign off on on some positions and and said no this is my watch i need to be comfortable that every position that we're making redundant is in the best interest of the organization and therefore the best interest of the rate payer and he's put a hold on it for the time being he's going to take some time to do a complete organizational review and um and and understands the positions that council want to target which is the upper and the middle management and he'll, he'll go about that and report back to council and we'll, we'll look it's inevitable like it, it's it's sad because I, I know what it's like to lose my job i know what it's like to be a single parent and come out of a, a mine and be told thanks fellas it's friday afternoon don't come monday we've lost the contract i mean it hurts it, it's not enjoyable um but we're in a position where we, we need to we need to fix up a, a sinking ship and wow that's a big thing to call it we could drop 30 million dollars on our road network tomorrow and we would only get it back to minimum standard and you know every bitumen road should be resealed a, a minimum of 15 years depending on use and um and we're at 26. so we're way behind in our bitumen road maintenance and when you do that you end up with a lot more potholes you end up with a lot more clay panning those things need to be fixed up first before you actually go and reseal it so it's just like a um, like a, a ball of string. Does it keep you up at night? Uh, sometimes, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you, or you wake up early in the morning and think, how am I going to, you know, where where can we find a rabbit to pull out of that hat? You know. <laughs> but look, we've got you know the new CEO Shane is is has extensive local government experience. Um, you know, he was an advisor to fifteen councils in the you know the central and northern Queensland. Um, he's seen this stuff before. He knows what we need to do. Um, it's just a you know, it's just a long road back. And I think for the councillors, you know, we all had ambitions and desires on what we wanted to do. We knew we would need to do a little bit of repair. We didn't realise it'd be sort of, you know, emergency surgery like what we're into. And and that just puts on hold everything that we wanted to do for the community um, for another couple of years. So, but mate, it, it, you know, at the end of the day, it is what it is. We'll just get stuck in and make sure we let people know the facts around why we're making decisions. And um, so, so they can best understand they may not agree with what we do, but at least they'll know why we're doing it. You have a, uh, a farming background? Yes. Uh, what was that like growing up in that sort of idyllic situation of the farm and there were some, some good times and also some, some real tragedy for you, I believe. What is was it like growing up on the farm? Mate, I can't think of anything better. Like, um, you know, we were very sheltered uh we just worked before school and after school and saturdays was work but i i you know i guess you we didn't know anything else and and i thoroughly enjoyed it I, you know we rode motorbikes and drove cars before we could reach the pedals you know and <laughs> did all that we used to we had an old daihatsu scat and we used to just put it in first gear low range and let the clutch out and and idle everywhere we went because we couldn't we were too short to reach the pedals but <laughs> It, it was it was good you know you learn so much about yourself you, you you pick up so many skills that you don't realize the value until later on in life you know maintaining vehicles and all that sort of stuff that um and it was you know picking zucchinis and i hated picking beans oh man hated it with a passion i, I have the utmost respect for bean pickers that can <laughs> bend over for eight hours a day and but I, I, I learnt from mum and dad that you, you have to have a good work ethic. You've, you've got to get up and get into it. But also to take pride in, in what you produce, you know. We, 
on the, on every box or, you know, in the early days in the 80s, it was Hessian Bags. There was, you know, BFNCA Hartwig, you know, proudly produced by BFNCA Hartwig. And, and that instilled in us that putting your name to something was, was very important. And um, to make sure that when you put that out the gate, it, it was the, the best quality you possibly could do and that, you know, there was a moral obligation with farmers to produce a product that, that nourished the, the end consumer. Um, so mate, it was, it was, I, I, it was great. You know, it was, it was wonderful. And I've still got the farm now and you know, it, it'll, if my kids want it, they can have it. If not, someone else will. But, um, no, I, I, I guess we missed out on a lot of sport and those sort of things, which I, you know, I enjoyed my sport. And, uh, because we grew up on the farm, there was a natural ability there. We were always very active and, and, you know, we did miss out things there, but I mean, at the end of the day, it, it, it was great. You talk about your dad. Tell us about him. Good farmer? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, he was, for me, he was just this rock of dependability. It didn't, he was the so, sort of person that you knew that if you were in a storm, if you were just near dad, everything would be okay. And, um, you know, he expected us to to get in and work. There was no, um, you know, no free lunch. <laughs> um but, you know, yeah, him, particularly in the, in the later years, Dad and I, you know, my brother had gone away to university and, and so it was him and I really and, and, you know, bean prices were always dropping. You know, when we started in the 80s, you used to grow for about three months and, and make decent money out of that, and, but it got worse as every year went on and by 91, before Dad died, you know, we were growing sort of eight or nine months of the year and um, him and I just, you know, we could be working on the tractor and, we just you didn't have to say anything i i knew what spanner he needed and he knew what spanner i needed and you'd just be handing stuff around and it was um yeah it was i just appreciate all the little things he taught me particularly about horses and you know how to be gentle with them and um you know there's um and i think he was always committed to um principles before profit you know it was the way he farmed he, he had was one of the, the first farms in, in this area in particular, but maybe even around the state that was um, you know, certified at Biodynamic through the Biodynamic um, Agriculture Association of Australia and um, with Alex Podolinski and, and that's how we grew beans. And it was all about his, his moral obligation as a farmer to do the best he could, A, for the land, but also for the people that consumed. And, and that sort of, you know, I suppose those principles have sort of, you know, come with me all my life, and and um, you know, particularly into council as well. I think he was a great, a great, uh, a great dad. I, you know, wonderful. Well, it was a tragedy the way. Can you can you share how you lost your dad and you were there at the time? Yeah, I suppose. Um, my cousin and I, we, we had a little veggie patch, and um, dad said to us, "Look, go down and you know, dig this area here." And he was. We'd had a pretty tough year, 91. It wasn't that uh, profitable. And so he ran around and trimmed up every tree, possibly, you know, big hoop pine trees and silky oak and anything he could just to sell to sort of make a dollar. And um, so we went down to the veggie patch and I just had this feeling in my gut, something wasn't right. He was going off to cut down the last silky oak tree. And, um, and it just kept getting worse and worse until eventually I said to my cousin, look, I'm going to see dad. And he said, oh, but we haven't finished here. And 
you know, the deal was with my dad, you know, if he said, go and do it, you went and did it and you finished it. And then you went <laughs> and saw him. You didn't, you didn't come back and say, hey, dad, I'm half done. What do you want me to do? You know? So um, I just said to my cousin, look, mate, I'm, I'm going. You can stay here if you want. And we both ended up riding over to where he was on the bike. And, and uh, I just, as soon as I arrived, I knew something was wrong. The tractor was still going and, and you could just feel it, you know, and... Uh, so I, I told my cousin to go home and get mum and then I went down to where dad was and it um, he was hadn't completely passed away. He was still there and sort of, you know, he'd had a, a tree injury to his to his leg and was sort of looking at me, trying to tell me stuff and and um, and yeah, and I I was just distraught. Absolutely distraught. I just you know, it was the first time in my life that I realised that, that rock wasn't going to be there his injury was so significant there was there was nothing that would save him and and um but you know even at that point he's dad was pretty steady until you you um crossed the line and and even then you know he was trying to reach out to me even though he couldn't really um you know couldn't really get words together so um yeah it wasn't wasn't the most enjoyable experience Oh, must but, have been. Absolutely. But it, um, you, you can feel it just just hearing about it, but also a blessing that you were there. Yeah, yeah. It's um. I suppose yeah. I, I've never really thought about it that way. You don't ever get your parent, your, your whether it's a father or a mother that's passed away, to ever say, "Well, I'm I'm proud of you anymore," or you know, you're doing a good job, or um, you know you've got good kids or something like all that stuff you, you all must like... be proud of you though where you've taken over as the mayor of the city that you grew up in um oh well, i hope so you know i i hope so I, I um i don't do it because i um would like him to be proud of me but i hope he sees that um that the principles that he sort of instilled in us as kids that they're represented in me and that um that i'm i'm doing what's right you know i uh, I, I, I just see it as a position of responsibility and, and I see that I, there's certain skills that I have that I've learnt over time that I think are beneficial to the, the council and the community right now. And um, it's not, a, it's not a, something I sort of aspired to do. I didn't, and in 2016, I didn't sit down and go, well, I just want to do four years as a councillor and, and, and have a tilt at the top. It was, <laughs> it was the furthest thing from my mind. I, I, I was happy, you know, running the business. I was happy being a councillor. And it was, for me, it was just matters of principle. And, um, you know, I hope Dad sees that, you know, it's, it's principles that drive me and, um, and that he can sort of make that connection between himself and, and me. What changed you, though, going through that experience on the farm with your dad? Um, I lost a lot of weight. Holy white man. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, I, like, I look back on it now and I didn't handle it that well. Dad was, was so, uh, such a strong person and, and was such an important part of my life. Um, so that was December um, 91. And in, I think, February 92, I was at the police academy. But I... I, I I lost a lot of weight and um, and went down to Brisbane and I think I was just lost for a long time. I didn't really know. I was finding out who I was because you know having someone around you was such a, a strong presence and um, suddenly there was a big hole to fill and I, I suppose I started to find out a bit more about myself. Um, I certainly appreciate um, parents more. I think um, 
and and you know particularly around the world you know we we're generally pretty lucky in this country and in most western countries where you know the majority of parents um you know raise their children and 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 those sorts of things whereas if you look to some of the third world countries it's it's quite a different cup of tea and um i think i became a little bit more uh, empathetic really i i um which was to help you um when you became a police officer yeah oh, i don't know i, I it was, see even that was never a career for me it was you know dad had, i just wanted to be on the farm i was happy on the farm working with dad and he said you need to go and work for five years somewhere else see how the other half live and really know then whether or not this is what you want to do wisdom it was yeah and i didn't you know I didn't have that once he was gone, <laughs> which was, you know, that's that's the struggle. I, I think, you know, to find someone, you know, particularly in your late teens and, and coming into your, your, your mid-20s there where you've got someone that's solid that can give you those those bits of advice. And I think that was probably the, the thing I missed the most, that, you know, um, in, in times of, of difficulty, often you've got nowhere to go. Um, you've got, you've, you've just got to sort of, um, you know, rely on yourself, and and it, it's hard to find people that are good mentors. So for a, um, yeah, that was that would be the biggest thing that I missed. Just that you know, and and even when life is a struggle, you just got someone to go and rest, you know, rest your head on their shoulder, and and they can say a comforting word of like, you know, you'll be right, you know, just you, you'll be okay, you know. So, um. I suppose, yeah, it, it did create a fair bit of self-reliance, um, but it's something I, I do miss, even now. Did you question the fact that you did have that feeling that you needed to go and see that something was wrong? Um, I, I think the only thing that made me probably delay going earlier was the fact that, you know, we had a, a, a work ethic that when Dad said go and, you know, go and do it, you, you went and finished it before you went and saw him. And... It just, the, the feeling became stronger and stronger to the point where I, I just couldn't ignore it anymore. I knew something was wrong before I left the, the veggie patch. That must have been, though, did you look back and go, wow, I had that feeling, but did you question it? Um, I think it, it, it raised questions about, um, you know, different sides of um, human beings. And, you know, I guess from a scientific perspective, how do you explain that? You know, how, Exactly. Um, so then you start to wonder, well, what other aspects are there to life? Um, is, you know, what we're told the only way that we interact as human beings? Are there other things out there? It certainly created a lot of questions, yeah. Did you get any answers? Oh, yeah, when I looked around. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was a pretty significant thing to happen for you to have that feeling. Did it, you know, make you sort of ask different questions that you might not have before? Um, look, we always, we were, you know, went to church every Sunday, so we, we understood that we were of the belief that we had a, um, you know, there was more than us than just a body. Um, and I think through that whole process and, 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 you know, further on in life, I started to, you know, to question the relevance of that um, and, and, and look for answers that explained a lot of the things that I was, um, you know, finding out through through that event and then through other things that occurred in the police service, you know. So, um, yeah, I, I, th I think we are just uh, amazing beings and um, there's more to us than just, a, you know, two arms and two legs. And you know, I, 
I think the challenge is whenever you start to delve into this realm, people think, well, you know, you're out there swinging on the trees, smoking dope and, <laughs> you know, um, but I'm more of the, the, the middle middle road. I think, you know, we can't deny that there is something wonderfully magical about what we are as human beings that probably other animals, or maybe other animals have something similar as well. I don't know, but I, I know what I've experienced and I... Um, and I don't mind if people haven't experienced that or, or disagree sounds, with it me. It sounds pretty powerful, though. Oh, mate, I don't know. It's just is. It, it's just for me. It just is what it is, and and um, it's it's what I see and or what I've felt or what I've experienced, and and I don't I don't expect everyone to agree with me or or feel the same way. How did it change your relationship with your mother? You talk about your connection with your parents. The, the loss of your father at an early age in such a tragic way. How did it change your relationship with your mother? Um, it probably... I think the timing was that I was sort of getting out of the nest anyway. So, um, you know, I think we just... Everything sort of went on the same there as, you know, as it had before. So mum had always been a hard worker. You know, she worked full time at, at the hospital in town and, and then be back working on the farm to sort of keep you know to keep the, the two pieces of string as close together as possible and and you know she still works now like i i'd like her to slow down but i, <laughs> I, I don't think it's going to happen um but you know mum mum had to mum had to endure a lot you know to lose dad who you know like, I, I don't think he was just a rock for me i think he was a rock for all of our family you know he was sort of the glue that and even our extended family in terms of his brothers and sisters, I think they felt it as well in that he just had this way about himself and a, and a presence that everything would be okay, you know. Um, it, you might be going through something tough, but you'll be all right. You know, a comforting word from him really comforted people. Um, and mum didn't have that anymore. And so, you know, to go from where you're married to someone and you know you're pushing in the same direction and and um to suddenly it's you're you're on your pat malone it, it was very challenging and difficult for mum you moved on to the police force why did you make that decision to go from the farm to the academy <laughs> it's uh it's a bit comical um dad said you got to go and do something else i, I didn't want to go to uni um and a mate of mine applied and or was going to apply and said, Glenn, you should apply too. And I went, oh, right, eh? So we had a, uh, a sergeant of the Kimby Police Station came to careers day at the high school and he said, you know, you get to, you know, use a gun or carry a gun. And I thought, well, what do you do? I mean, we, we had him around the farm all the time. It was, that meant nothing to me. He said, oh, you get to drive a, you know, a, a car around. And, and I thought, oh, well, I've been doing that since I couldn't reach the pedal, so that means nothing. <laughs> But then he said you get four weeks holiday a year plus six weeks if you work shift work. Now, we hadn't been on four weeks holiday in 10 years on the farm. <laughs> so I thought my ears pricked and I went, holy what? Man, this is amazing. You know? Four weeks a year and six weeks if you work shift work. <laughs> so um, I went, applied and, and went through the process. And the funny story, this is, I don't know, it could be embarrassing, but I find it funny anyway, but you have to do a 2.4 kilometre run and, and, and a few things at the academy. And I went down for that and um, 
pretty fit back in those days and did a good time and there was another another one of the guys who came up and I don't know you're not looking in such bad shape these days oh, still mate I'm lucky if I can run to the fridge <laughs> <laughs> so um, he, Mark Harvey was his name he came up to me and he started talking and said oh you did a good time and I, and I went yeah and I sort of looked around as if it was a big secret I said mate you know you get four weeks holiday a year with this thing and he was at, at uni to studying to be a teacher and he said looked at me and went yeah and I said <laughs> Mate, unbelievable, isn't it? <laughs> because I just had no concept that that was what you did when you worked for someone else. So we ended up being in the same squad. Very first day, he looks at me and says, I know you, you're here for the holiday. <laughs> but um, yeah, for me, it was, I, I don't know. I, I think particularly at that time I was, I was lost and I, I would have done anything because I just needed to find myself and find my way in life. And, and sort of that's why I went there. How did you feel the first holiday when you actually put the uh, the leave pass in? <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I, I, then I found out you could actually stack them up, and and if you didn't take you know holidays in the first year, you could roll them over, and you'd end up you know with eight weeks at the end of two years. So <laughs> I didn't take many holidays early on because I wanted to, three months was the maximum, and I wanted to have three months holidays stacked away. So now the first holiday I took was I went over to Western Australia to see my brother. He was over there doing a bit of mining and, um, and that was good. Two weeks off and tripped around and had a look at Western Australia, which is just, well, back in the mid nineties and I'm still sure it's still the same. It's just beautiful. You know, the, the coastline there is, is different to the Eastern side here. And, and the people there were just, you know, just so friendly and welcoming. We just rolled the swag out and sand dunes all over the place. And, and that's how we can just blooming great. I did the trip to WA, went up to the Kimberley's machine operating as a young fellow, just oh. as, a, uh, as, as a bit of a break from, from the media. So I, I do understand uh, living in the back of the van at Scarborough <laughs> Beach, and it was, uh, it, was, it, was a great, it was a great spot to get away from, and, and it was like there was very much over here and over there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when you um, got into the police force, what stuck out for you? Um, I, I think the paperwork, um, I had no concept of paperwork and all that sort of stuff. And, and we were post Fitzgerald and they still hadn't worked out the training course and all that sort of stuff. Everything was sort of, you know, on the run. So there were a lot of, a lot of things that we had to sort of wade through um, once we were out on the job. Um, I had to learn very quickly about other human beings. I, you know, I, I didn't realise that if they were doing their nut, even if I just you know, showed up and they were having a go at me that it wasn't actually me. It was the position that I represented and that if anyone else was in that uniform and in that position standing there like I was, that they would be the target of the abuse as well. So that was, you know, what I was 18 or 19 or something and you didn't get that in the bean patch. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they were, there was some steep learning curves about understanding human beings and, and, and how they, or a certain demographic of human beings interacted with other human beings and it was something completely foreign to me how did that affect you though when you were dealing with it on a day-to-day -day basis because there is that animosity obviously towards police on some levels um how did you deal with that as you say going from the bean patch which sounds quite ideal idyllic except that you were bending over for eight hours how did you cope with that sort of animosity that you're experiencing uh, I just had good, you know, mentors around me that would say, hey, it's not, it's not you, it's, you know. Um, and I think you just in that environment, you realise that um, 
you know, these people are frustrated either with their lives or with society or, or with something. And, and, you know, you're the, you're the area that they're going to vent it into. Um, look, it, it, for me, it, it did take a little while to, to understand and, and get a grasp of. But, um, I mean, you just sort of, you know, you learn these things as you go and, and um, eventually you just realise, well, I'm just here to do a job. Um, there's, you know, there's a process that we have to go through, or there's, you know, something we've got to do, and and that's all there is. And don't, just don't take it personally. It's a bit like, um, you know, the mayors and councillors get criticised all the time. I was going to say, as a politician, it was must be a great breeding ground to find out, you know, that you're not going to please all of the people all of the time. Yeah, yeah, and you know, there were, there were, there were some occasions in the police service where you know, you'd have people. I remember one young girl that, you know, was quite rude and, and um, as she was coming out of a nightclub and, and abusive and two days later I had to go to her house because she'd had it broken into. And it was, um, she recognised me and I recognised her and it was <laughs> one of those moments where I think she learnt just as much as that from I did in that, you know, um, if we treat everyone with the respect that we would want to be treated if we were in their position, then um, the world's a much better place. What about what's going on with the police service over in the US at the moment? Are you following that? Look, actually, no, I, I don't really, I don't have a lot of time to follow the TV or, or social media. I think... Um, okay, the George Floyd in incident, which has triggered the, the Black Lives Matter, and they basically put a knee to his neck, and nine minutes, 46 seconds, and to, until he passed away. I... I, I don't understand why anyone would feel a need to do that because there is there is processes in place you are trained well in Queensland anyway we were trained to a level where we understood that the minute you had someone arrested say you'd put them in handcuffs the first thing you did was roll them over into the recovery position as in first aid because you didn't want to inhibit or restrict their airways in any way so I, I don't I don't follow a lot of the American stuff because I don't relate to everything or the way they think in a, in a lot of um, circumstances. Um, putting your knee on the back of someone's neck for nine minutes, was it 42 seconds? 46. 46. Yeah. I, 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 I can't join those dots. It doesn't make any sense to me why you would do that. And well, what that you're saying is inappropriate. Com completely uh, at odds with what you say, the training that you've received. Oh, absolutely, yeah. We would have never... We, you know, the minute you had someone handcuffed behind their back, instantly the recovery position, you rolled them into the recovery position. Because no one, he was sort of sitting there saying that uh, he couldn't breathe. And the other officers that were there stood around. And from what you're saying, that wouldn't happen in Queensland anyway. I, I didn't see any of that in my time in Queensland. You know, I, I worked in the valley, which was, the Fortitude Valley was very different in the early 90s to what it is now. <laughs> <laughs> that was another learning curve, let me tell you. I didn't realise that most of the uh, sex industry workers were actually men. <laughs> <laughs> so um, they used to still walk the streets. And uh, um, yeah, look, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I think in America, it's... Um, it is a different world to us. I know when I was at Red Hill, we had some guys from um, America come out and, and, and ride with us for a little while. And we would pull a car over and do an RBT and it was just, you know, one of the things we did. We got back in the car and they just couldn't believe that we didn't pull our guns out. And, you know, and that's their standard procedure. They're, 
Yeah, but everyone else is carrying over there as well. I know, so it just it, seems it, to be, you know, and it might just be my perception, a, a trigger-happy environment where everyone's willing to shoot first and ask questions later, and, and that's not us over here. So I, I don't relate at all to the way they do things. Um, I think they, they, you know, definitely need to, as police, need to act with a lot more care in their environment. But if you've got someone in handcuffs or restrained, I mean, it's, um, they're, they're no longer a threat. People are leaving the service over there uh, in droves. They, you know, and they're talking about underfunding police services over there. Is it a career that you would recommend to someone here in Queensland because of what you know, because of what you've experienced? Um, oh, look, I think it's it's not something I would go back to. Um, I've I saw enough, and uh, hopefully, I learned enough from my time there. Um, look, if people are inclined to do, there's a lot of occupations that I wouldn't do, or um, but that doesn't mean we don't need them. I mean, the the chaos that we would have and the anarchy if we didn't have police there to protect our democratic ways would be far worse. So if if people want to head down that path, I'm you know I, I wish them all the best. Um, go in with your eyes open. It's not. Um, it's not like CSI or something like that where you solve a crime in uh, you know half an hour or an hour time slot. Um, and there is a lot of you know a lot of paperwork, a lot of boredom, um, and a, and a lot of repetitious work. And I think that you know particularly in Australia, I, I think we if we can um, appreciate what the police do and and you know even you know the fire services and and for um, ambulance guys i mean it's a it's a it's a really tough job and and often we we don't apply the um the standards of humanity that we apply to ourselves to them we don't understand what their day involves and you know um i don't think we give them the the same understanding that we would want if we were doing that that job because often police can go you know from a, a fatal traffic accident to a violent domestic violence situation. Um, and then there is another situation where someone is you know, trying to start a fight or spitting at them. And our expectation is that they should respond to that event like nothing else happened in the day. And I understand it's, it's, it's a really contentious topic when you start heading down this path. But when we look at... Um, the struggles that police face, I think we need to take in the, the, the context of the entire day um, what they've been through and how that may have affected them before we throw them under the bus. I think most people, when they go and see just how difficult that job is and, um, you know, if they got to ride along, they would, they would have a higher respect for, you know, the, the work that the police do because it's, it's a tough gig. And, oh. and, and I'm not saying that they get it right all the time. I'm not saying that they behave the right way all the time. But I, 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 I think we should act out of compassion first before we throw people under the bus in, in this country. It's interesting, though. I know as a, um, as, as a crime cameraman, someone had to be basically dead or dying before I'd turn up. And, yeah. and there's always a hostile situation. And you are the person that they will direct their, their, their frustrations or whatever. As you say, you, you copped it as, as a police officer. And 
What's the worst thing that you had to endure as far as what you saw, what you experienced when you're in the police service? Um, I spent some time at the um, watch house at Herschel Street, the old watch house. There was a ground floor and, and the upper floor was a staging unit before um, prisoners or people on remand would go to Wakeol R&R. R&R was full and, and the result was that the bodies backed up into that facility. I think it was designed to handle about 29 and at the, the height there we had 70. So if it was a, a one, a single bed cell, there was another mattress on the floor. If it was a two bed cell, there was a mattress on the floor and three people in it. Um, the exercise yards were just a sea of mattresses and the prisoners in there would rotate one bed every day because someone had to sleep in front of the toilet. Like it was a horrible environment for anyone. And it, you know, two police, 70 prisoners, one universal key that opened every door. Did it ever get lost? No. <laughs> and, and the prisoners used to call it the key to freedom because it would open every door on that level, every door downstairs, and the door that would let them into the, um, you know, the, the, the court system and, and their freedom. So it was a, you know, it was a, how the politicians, and the politicians knew about it. And I remember one day we had a, the premier of the time, we had to empty that facility out, all the property, all the paperwork associated with it, all the prisoners got trucked out to R&R. &R. Um, Premier at the time comes and has a look through and, and looks at, you know, empty cells and whatnot. And then gets a, um, as he was heading out through the courts, we had the prisoners coming back up in the internal stairs. And, and I, that was when I realised that, um, well, I, I formed the view that some politicians weren't there to actually do what was in the best interest of the people. And... It, it wasn't a healthy environment for police. It wasn't a healthy environment for prisoners. I mean, down one side was, you know, your pedophiles and um, protective prisoners who, as a young person at 20, I shouldn't have had to see what they were doing to one another. It was horrendous in the sense of um, the acts that they would perform on one another for pleasure. No one should have to be put through that. And... Um, you know, it was the environment we were in and, and the politicians and, and the, you know, the management of the time weren't interested in, in alleviating the problem, you know. The PTSD that, you know, people like yourself must experience is, is quite real. Oh, I, I think too, particularly back then it was, you know, anyone with a, a mental injury was considered soft or, a, you know, a, a sook or, a, you know, rotting the system. And in the event that, um, you know... Were there many? Were there many that were suffering? Well, that would uh, come out and say things. Oh, look, it, it, yeah. There were, it was just the general, you know, it was a general um, statement that was made by particular individuals that were probably louder than most. Um, I think the reality was those individuals were probably suffering most. And it was, you know, you... And, and it, it was the same for me in that, I, you know, when you suffer an injury like that and you can't, see a scar or you don't have stitches or your arm's not in a sling but you know something's not right um it's really hard to fathom and denial is a good place to go and um and for those you know i think some of the officers that were probably the most vocal about it were probably the ones that were suffering most and just trying to deal with it themselves and justify that they were okay you know how did it affect you um well the event in in question 
well, and it may have been, you know, it may have been the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, we had a, a, a man sitting on a, in a brick home, sitting on a toilet. Um, he had his de facto on his lap. He had a, a paring knife in one hand that he would stab her chest with and a, and a knife that he had at her throat that he would cut away at. So when she grabbed the knife on the throat, he'd stab her in the chest and, and vice versa. Um, um, you know, I... Throughout that event, um, and I used to have, we recorded it. Oh, the, one of the other officers recorded it, um, Dan McNamara, who's now at um, Pomona. And, you know, I, I had never experienced someone that genuinely wanted to die because he genuinely wanted to die, and this was not his first um, attempt at, at suicide. Um, but he would beg, and, and he would beg with a, with a passion and an energy that you just knew every cell in his body wanted to die. And then he had his partner on his lap who was begging us to kill him with every cell. And, and the screams, you know, the, the screams from her when she was being stabbed or cut were, um, I mean, Hollywood's got no idea. Uh, it, was, it was just um, a rawness that I'd never experienced before and, and I, I couldn't comprehend um, we managed to get her out, which was which was great. And in the process of putting handcuffs on him, at some point, I, an officer's gun has been dislodged from the holster, or um, you know maybe he was standing there and it dropped or something. I, I don't know, but I, I sort of put my head because when you try to arrest people and, and put the cuffs on the, behind their back, they'll they'll bring their hands up here and they'll they'll lock them, and, and you sort of got to pull them out. And and I got right down close to him on the floor and started to pull pull an arm out so we could handcuff him and at that point when my head was pretty close to his the, the gun went off and I you know you're sort of in a bit of a daze for a while thinking did something hit the floor you know you you, you can't understand how that happened because my weapon's in my holster Macca's is in his holster and and you don't yeah it doesn't make a lot of sense and then when I could see the the smoke and and the blood and everything I realized what had what had gone on and um you know, we were very grateful to the family. The, the, the way that the um, investigation team um, from, I think it might have been the CJC, treated us was disgraceful. I mean, I was threatened to be charged with murder or manslaughter. You're kidding. And, and um, as were all of the police, and, and, and I said to the dudes, mate, we did everything we could, you know. It was, but that was, that was you know, their Is role. that a result of Post Fitzgerald? Oh, I think it was. It was just part of the pendulum swinging too far one way and there not being a lot of balance. And it, but there was the inspector at the CIB at the time took over the investigation and, um, you know, he interviewed us and, and we, um, I think I got back to the Nambour police station at about four or five in the morning. I'd started at two that afternoon and, and um, you know, our debrief was my uh, wife at the time, Heather, just... Um, bought some sausages and some bacon and eggs into the station. We had a barbecue and a couple of beers and I went home and had a sleep. That was, you know, next, next shift I rocked into work and they said, are you okay? And I went, oh yeah, I'm fine. And that's, that was what we did. Um, Were you? Um, look, if I was, if I thought I was, I didn't know I wasn't. Um, I think, I, d I didn't realise that I, and I don't know whether it was, you know, you plummet off a cliff and, and hit the bottom or you sort of start a, a spiral down, but there was, um, 
I knew I knew something wasn't right. I used to Nambour was the, the police station that did most of the autopsies, and a police officer had to be present, and that was me. I was one of the most junior staff there, and that was my role. And I didn't. I actually didn't mind it. You know, it was quite interesting to see someone's life displayed in their in their organs. Um, it's an interesting way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, well, you could see city people versus country people, smokers versus non-smokers, and you know, um, you know, had they consumed a lot of alcohol, and 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 that would show up in their organs. So of I, course. I found that you know that part of it interesting. But I went in, and and the guy was Tony, and and uh, who was the assistant there, and uh, I sort of walked in, and he, and I just said, Tony, I, I got to go. I, I I can't do this. I'm going to throw up. Um, I need to get out of here. And he said, oh, well, you've got to sign the statement. I said, mate, you can write whatever you want. I don't care. You're either going to clean up that mess or you're going to clean up the mess that I create as well. And I, I went back to the station. I said to the boss, I said, mate, I can't do that anymore. I, something's not, you know, just, I just want to throw up when I'm in there. Um, and, and what Tony was doing at the time was actually cutting through bone. And they have a little reciprocator saw um, similar to when they cut off a cast off an arm. And it creates some heat. And the heat sort of burns the bone a little bit and and it's it's a very similar smell to gun smoke burnt flesh and 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 fresh blood and 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 that's what i'd experienced in that um in that incident so i you know going into a butcher for a, a number of years was something i didn't do i just when they if they were cutting up um through bones on a bandsaw there's a certain amount of heat and an odor that's generated and that would just um you wouldn't know unless you'd experience what you'd experienced yeah, I guess so, yeah. I've been into a butcher hundreds of times and never had a bad experience. So, <laughs> you know, you just, yeah. you just don't realise. So obviously it has affected you. Yeah, it did. And, um, and I didn't know, you know, once again, I didn't know why. But um, um, I think that for me, the, the, the real crux came when we were Heather and I were coming back from the Sunshine Coast and we were heading over the overpass at North Arm there where, where the highway goes over the, the rail line and I looked at her and said you know if you drop dead right now if you died right now I would know exactly what to do I know what form needs to be filled out I know who I need to call I know everything that we need to do in terms of procedure but I just wouldn't feel anything and um, for me, that was one of those awakening moments where I had to accept that I wasn't quite right. There was a part of me that had disconnected from emotions and feelings and, and that there was something, you know, awry. And that was probably the most profound event um, in terms of the effect it had on my life. What was the best thing that happened to you while you are in the uh, service? Oh, I think just some of the, the, the people that you meet. I've still, you know, there's a, a core group of us that we went through the academy together. We've all, you know, not all of us are still in the police service. And, you know, you can catch up with them and it's, and you may not have spoken to each other for 12 months, two years, but it's like you had a barbecue yesterday, you know. it's, um, And, it, you know, some of the colleagues that you worked with, you know, I still catch up with and, you know, you talk dribble, <laughs> relive old stories. But I think that's the... Um, you know, that's the, 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 the blessing that comes out of a job like that. On the, uh, on the road, though, is there, is there something that stands out that, um, that really, you know, in a good way affected you while you're out uh, in, in the execution of your duties? 
I think just teaching you about other human beings and about regulations and, and you know, I, I think there's so many experiences that, that make up who you are and, and, and teach you about things in life. There's, it's hard to put my finger on one. I just think it, it is, um, for the right people, it's a really good environment to learn. We are a pretty lucky um, area. We've got some pretty special people in this area. We have a thing called uh, the SCIC. Yeah. Um, which I believe you're now getting involved with, um, speaking with Marlene, Marlene Owen. And um, I believe that you've lost your wife to cancer quite a few years ago. You're talking about being a single parent. How did that draw on you being the single parent for so many years? Um, look, it was, it was interesting. <laughs> it was uh, not what I wished for my kids in any way. I, uh, I had, you know, in my head, my life would be I married Heather. We'd be old, you know, sitting in a rocking chair on a porch, drinking a cup of tea, watching the sunset. I just hadn't, you know, it, it wasn't the direction that I thought our life would go. And I, I certainly didn't want it for Josh and Maddie in any way. Um, you know, I, I, I look, often look back on that time and, and um, not being a mother, but, you know, over the last sort of 16 years being forced to try to look at things from a different perspective or a more feminine perspective, I often feel that, you know, for her, I was in the middle of trying to sort myself out. You know, I may have been... Um, medically retired but i still you know that once the service just punted you you're like once i was out the gate there was nothing there was no help there was no assistance there was there was nothing you know they just wrote you off and said on your bike and um and i was still trying to sort myself out and and um deal with all that sort of stuff and and rebuild me and and then these um you know and then she ended up with breast cancer and um I think at the time it was probably a little bit overwhelming for me and, and I didn't want to acknowledge that, you know, the inevitable may occur. And I look back now and I, I wish I'd had a lot more conversations with her about what she wanted for her children. Um, but at that time I just wasn't emotionally strong enough to, to sit down and, and, and discuss those things with her because I couldn't, I couldn't see how I could do the job. I, I didn't think I had it in me to, to do anything without her. She was such a, a wonderful woman. Um, and I often, you know, think, you know, there, she's proceeding towards, you know, the, the end of her life. Um, and I often wonder about what she would have thought leaving me behind to look after her kids, knowing I was struggling to look after myself. And... Um, How did you cope? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think in those circumstances, you've just, you've got to pull your pants up and get on with it. And um, and at the same time, you know, that was part of, um, yeah. I, I learned a lot from a horse. And, and I, you know, we've all heard of equine therapy and I, I've still got the horse, Bessie, and, and she will pass away on, on the farm because she was such a wonderful teacher of me. Um you know, anyone who's dealt with horses knows that they, they sense a lot of things. And, and she was, Dad, when he planted, he planted on the contour um, with a single row planter. And we had a number of draft horses when we were kids, and that's all I knew. 
still had the planter. So if I'm going to grow small crops, that's what I'll do. <laughs> and um, so I got her and and there's a Monty Roberts. People have probably heard about the Monty Roberts method of um, join up with horses and that. And I did that and 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 we formed a connection and I'd find that if, if she would, we were going along and she'd jump across a row, if I got frustrated or, you know, or my, you know, that, that sort of emotion rose, she immediately would her head and go up in the air and she'd look around and then we'd be all over the place like a, like a snake, you know. Um, I had to learn to calm myself down and I had to learn to um, control my emotion and, and not let those things bother me. And, um, you know, I'd go and, and, and whilst I remained calm and, and, and didn't let, the, and, and, and kept my emotions in check, every, everything was fine. And that taught me a lot. And, was, and, and just the relationship you develop with an animal like that over time, particularly when you're hurt and you're broken. And, and so that was in the, you know, the late 90s. And, and equine therapy is a, um, you know, and, and animal therapy in general, you know, is, is considered something that uh, a lot of practitioners use now. Um, so I was sort of, you know, on the way out, I suppose, or on, on the mend, maybe. Um, but I just had to, you know, the, the kids were important. You know, it, was, it wasn't about me, it was about them. And So they helped you cope? Maybe, I think, yeah, they gave me a reason to. Like, they gave me a purpose. Um, you know, the, uh, I, the best advice I had from a friend was, you know, you need to go on a bit of a holiday. And um, I ended up buying a caravan and we went off all the way down to Victoria and, and sort of spent about eight or ten weeks on the road and what, I, what the profound lesson I learned from that was at week three I, you can spend a lot of time with your kids but put yourself in a caravan and um, on the road with no one else and we were just at you know national parks and that sort of stuff um, you, I, I got to a point where I had to either decide I was going to get on with the kids and, and, and do all that sort of stuff in a confined space or um, I'd turn around and go and go home, and I, I couldn't bear to go back and and talk to, say to this bloke, look, I, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle the long holiday. I I came home, <laughs> so I, I kept driving, and it and it was really the foundation of, um, you know, me getting to know them and 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 re- for who they were, and um and we had a great time, and we often reminisce about we'd love to go and do it again. And they got to know you. I think so. Yeah, you know, it was it was a lot of fun and. I just read a lot, um, and you know they played a lot, and we did a whole lot of you know stupid stuff. But I think it was just us getting some sort of foundation and some sort of connection together, um, because even you know Heather had chemo and then radiation, and things are quite hectic, and you you sort of disjointed. And, and I'd been working a lot before that, so I probably hadn't spent as much time with them, even though you know we were on a farm as as I sort of needed to. So. Um, that was good, but then um, I don't know. I don't know how you. I, I honestly don't. I you know people talk about a process of grieving and all that sort of stuff, and you know you, I, I sometimes think you just sort of do what you have to do. You know, you, if you, if you're willing to learn and you and you want to get better or you want to understand things, the answers will come at the right time. And um, I was you know, and I do believe we you know I think reading's an important thing. Um, you should always have a book that you've got your head in at some point, you know, during the day, and and that's and that's just what I did. And over time, I seemed to get better and um and get stronger, you know. Because of that experience, um, with as I was saying, with the uh, 
SCIC that's quite important to support cancer patients here in the Kalula area. Um, must be pretty important to you then to support it and give it your help and assistance. Absolutely. We, you know, um, we utilise similar services down in Brisbane and, um, you know, we'd just gone through deregulation, didn't have a cracker, like, you know, had nothing in terms of financial help and, um, you know, we were reliant on the generosity of other organisations and other community members to sort of to, to house us, you know, for six weeks in Brisbane while Heather had radiation and um, so look, it's it's something that is close to my heart because I, I know what it's like to be in those circumstances. Um, and you know, and that's the the wonderful thing about our region. You know, you've got a another organisation, Little Haven. You know, when I was twenty nine or going on to thirty, I didn't understand palliative care. I had no concept of it. And they're pretty special people. Mate, I mean they like the, the job that they do, you know, a, a lot of people describe them as angels and I just think that's a bit unfair. It's not, not, not enough of an apt description because they came into my life and I had no idea what I had to do and, and I didn't want to go down that path. I didn't want Heather to pass away and they just bought everything that I needed. They never, they were just so wonderful. And it wasn't just them, you know, little things like... Um, the Alma Street Kindy, you know, I, after Heather passed away, that's where the, the, the kids were going and I couldn't work out why I wasn't getting a bill, you know. <laughs> and the, um, the parents had, had put the hat together and, and covered our fees. I mean, where else do you want to live? Like really, where else do you want to live when, when you've got people in the community that put their, their money where their heart and their mouth is and chip in for someone that they don't even know? And I mean, that's why I think you know, what makes the world a great place? It's, it's not all the bells and whistles. It's, it's, it's not all those things. It's the human beings that are in your community. And we've, in this region, there are none better, in my opinion. I agree with you. I've travelled most areas of Australia. And one thing that I, I, I compared the first two or three chemotherapy balls for, run by SCIC. And I was supposed to be paid for the first first one that I turned up and I saw how much work everyone was doing and it was like, nah, it's okay. Thanks, thanks, but, you know, like, it was the least I could do. Yeah. But I've found the people in this area the most giving, you know, and you hear a story like that, it's like, crikey. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's not only, you know, people, it's business owners. Like, in terms of SCIC, you know, Michelle and Chris Dodd from Adondo have gone well and truly above what most businesses would have done to support that organisation. Um, they constantly are doing work for us out of their own pocket. They're constantly um, involved in any fundraising activities that we do. And, you know, that's not saying that the other builders in town don't have their own thing, you know, that they put their heart and soul into. That's just something that... Oh, no, they are a and, big and, supporter. But you, you go around... And, you know, we all know that, you know, statistically, Gympie has a higher rate of volunteerism and it sort of rolls off the tongue but doesn't really encapsulate what you get when you come here. And that's what separates us from every other town, in, in my opinion, in the country. When you come into Gympie or, or the region, if you want to be a part of the community, we will welcome you with open arms. 
And for every, you know, one portion that you give, you'll get 10 in return. And it's why it's the best place to live. And, and you know, I know that everyone will say, oh, the mayor's supposed to say that sort of stuff. <laughs> I'm just telling you, that's what I experienced. You know, as a, as a, you know, Heather passed away a month before I was 30. And, um, you know, when I go to Little Haven um, stuff, I, I still don't feel I've repaid them for what they did for me, you know, and, and, um, and just the love and the concern that, that people show in our community. It, it, you know, at a recent chamber breakfast, we, we, we talked about Gympie's reputation as Helltown. And, and for me, I don't care. If this is Helltown, mate, if this... Do you think it's going, though? Oh, absolutely. But if this is Helltown, I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's it's the best place to be because we just, we care about one another. It's, I think it's part of our our fabric with with flooding and, and, and the struggles that we face with agriculture. When the chips are down, we all get on board and we all chew on paper because we, we care about one another. And we do. Why politics? Why did you get into council in the first place? Oh, mate, I just got frustrated. I, I got frustrated with, you know, roads not being maintained and rates were sort of going up a little bit then. Um, and I thought to myself, well, it's either time to put up or shut up. And um, I thought, I'll throw my hat in the ring and if people see value in me, then then I'll do it. And if not, I'll keep doing what I was doing. Um, you know, and then... Even more frustrating, though, when you got on the inside by the sounds of it. Yeah, it, it was. And, and local governments are really a, a, a different sort of beast. It's, it's a combination of, of politics and, and, and a corporate world. And, but then there's a massive amounts of regulations, particularly since Ipswich, you know, Logan and, and Morton Bay and Co. And um, that makes it very difficult. There's, you know, if people want to understand why local government and, and, and state and federal governments uh, are inefficient, well, we've regulated ourselves out of efficiencies. <laughs> and if, if you're in the corporate world and you can't compete with us, you might as well take your bat and ball and go home because you don't have... It's like stepping into a ring with your arms and legs tied behind your back. Um, the way I would run my business is very, very different to what we do in local government. Um, but, you know, I think it's... Dad always taught me to be thinking in you know, a 10, 15, 20 years down the track. And, and I look at Gympie and I think there's so much potential here. There's so much opportunity. We've got the, the, the bones right, but we've just failed to put money and, and, and invest time in, in the areas that really matter and will have an impact in, in perhaps 10 years' time. And um, I suppose that's the farmer coming out in me, having a, a vision for the a future and, and seeing the town or the region as a, as a blank canvas that we can you know, sort of grow and develop. How long do you plan to be the mayor for? Well, that's up to the people, I suppose. <laughs> do you have a, do you have a, you know, you want to be here for the next 10, 15 years? Oh, look, I don't think so. I, um, I, I think there's certain skills that I have at, at, at present that are probably suited to the environment that we're in now. And once those skills aren't suitable, then you've, you've got to move on. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll get through this term. I, I think this is the first step. Um, you know, whether I go on, if, if people are happy with what I've done after this term and they, they put me in for another four years, I, I'd have to really have a serious look then and see whether or not I was becoming stale or <laughs> whether, you know, whether 
um, I wasn't the right person for where the region was at then. Um, I've got a lot of faith in my ability and to do anything. You know, I think that comes from that farming background. And, you know, I've done a lot of different jobs, mining and stacked bricks at Gympie Boxworks when, it, when I needed to. And, um, and I believe, you know, if you've got that faith in your ability, you can turn your hand to anything and, and opportunities will come up. And I, I, I don't want to be one of those, um, you know, politicians like so many are that they're in for a long time and it's the people that say hey you're out you know they they forget to take note of of, of when their time's up when their skills are no longer needed anymore so um and of course everything i've got to run past delitha <laughs> so, you know she she came on this ride after i was elected um in you know in 2016 and has just been uh you know um, when you go through life and, and you don't always have that person by your side, that's someone to help you through things, uh, when you find someone as wonderful as she is, it, it, it really um, means a lot. And, you know, I always, I, I believe that you, you can, everything that you're given you can handle, you know, you can, and that's where I start out from. Um, and whatever load is put on your plate, you can handle it and you can get it done. Um, how good it gets done, though, <laughs> is another question. And, and with Talitha there, I mean, she's just so wonderful. She she balances me out. She she um, in everywhere that I'm deficient, she's really really strong. And and you know, she I just enjoy every moment with her. So um, anything that was going to um, you know, you know, if 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 staying on meant injuring. That, that wonderful relationship with, that we have, then it's, it's I'm, I'm out, I'm, I'm exiting stage left. You must be lucky that you, though, you've found that sort of relationship a second time. Yeah, really appreciate it, I, I really do. Um, because, you know, particularly her, her support, you know, um, we're, a, we're a blended family, she, you know, has to live on the coast, and for anyone, uh, any people that understand blended families, that um, you know, there's always you can't move where you want to move. Sometimes you, you've got to think about um, you know the children. You've got to think about you know their parents as well. Um, it's not always about you. So for us, we do a you know we don't see each other as much as we'd like to, or probably that often really in the in the grand scheme of things. But um, yeah, actually, it's blooming ordinary in terms of how much we get to see each other. <laughs> but, um, I mean, she's just a wonderful human being. Like, I, I just, you know, talk about land on your feet. I mean, you know, to... to and it's the thin threads, you know. It was a, a, a paint rep who was selling me paint at, um, at my business who was her neighbour, and, and that was the connection. And, um, you know, I don't... I, 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 started saying or bought the, the business the sandblasting and spray painting business because i had a dodgy knee and I, I i couldn't go back mining at the time and i knew i needed to feed the kids so that was that was an option and you know if i hadn't have done that which i you know it's not a i don't enjoy the process that much but you just get in and do it um i wouldn't have met her so you know for me that you know to go down that road and and do something that is that i did it so i could feed the kids and um, it wasn't a you know a, a passionate career, um, you know. Well, if that's the reward, well, I did all right. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I think we've chosen very well in our leader of the Kalula area and um, I wish you all the best for the term that you've got in front of you because obviously there are some, some challenges. But thank you so much and it's been an absolute pleasure to spend some time over the bonnet. Thank you uh, for the invitation, Mark. And I, th I think you're, you're absolutely right. The people have chosen wisely in, in council. We have a, a really good group of councillors that diverse backgrounds, we're all different. Um, and we all di bring different skills, but we're all committed to making the place better for everyone and, and you know acting responsibly at the same time. So looking forward to the next four years and um, and, and hopefully we can we can set you know set the start going down the right path and um, and deliver the things that the ratepayers want and, and make the region a better place for everyone. We already know it's good. I mean, we we live here because we could live anywhere in the country, but there's nothing better. I so agree. It is just yeah, and I and I'm and I'm look I, I get humbled, um, that the ratepayer, you know, entrusts me with this responsibility. Um, Sometimes I wonder whether <laughs> whether they've made the right choice, but I, I just try every day to do the best I can. Um, I'm very very you know, grateful that they that they see some value in me, and um, and I hope I live up to their standards. It's been a great chat, and I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity, Mark. This podcast is brought to you by Mary Mark Medical. Mary Mark Medical is your local medical practice in Gympie, specialising in quality family medical care. Are you always sick, ranging from acute medical issues to management of long-term chronic conditions? When you need to get better, even if you have complex health problems, get the right diagnosis with Merrymark Medical. Contact Merrymark Medical in Gympie on 54811873 or find them at 18 Young Street. The podcast is also brought to you by Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specialises in foam cut to size. They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery or craft foam or even loose filling foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. Ah, not so squeezy. And they'll also help you get down and dirty with rubber flooring and mats. And they've also got anti-fatigue matting and they have industrial mats and rubber. Plus, for Over the Bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount and you'll receive 10% off the marked price. That's right, 10%. Only for Over the Bonnet listeners when you mention the show and you have to ask for your discount. And finally, the show is brought to you by NICAD Earth Moving that specialises in roadworks, house pads, site cleanups, land clearing, dam construction, even dewatering and swamp drainage. I didn't even know you could do that. They have a 140H grader, which is big. Their Posi-Track Bobcat is also huge. There's a D65 dozer, three excavators for hire, including a 20-ton, an 8-ton, and a 2.5-ton. Plus, they provide side truck hire and have a roller and even a water truck. So contact Carl Dakin at NICAD Earth Moving on 0488 and I guarantee the earth will move for you.